Welcome to Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. Today I interview philosopher Scott Sion. If you don't understand God, you don't understand God, and that means you don't understand why he gave you moral intuitions. It means you don't understand why he gave us commands, if he did, in the Bible. We just don't understand what he does. Remember to visit commonsenseatheism.com for more episodes and articles about God, science, and morality. Dr. Scott Sion has his BA from Harvard and his PhD from Princeton, and he has written a book called Teleological Realism, Mind, Agency, and Explanation. He is now a professor of philosophy at Bowdoin College. Scott, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, Scott, today we're talking about the problem of evil. When philosophers discuss the problem of evil, what is it that they're talking about? Well, of course, the background is that there's a question about the existence of God. And the problem of evil is, most simply put, the question or problem of how it could be that a all-powerful, completely good God would allow the sort of suffering and evil that we see in the world. Right. And one of the most popular responses to the problem of evil from theists is called skeptical theism. How do skeptical theists respond to the problem of evil? Yes, it, it's an interesting variety. I'll start with the non-skeptical theists, and it's an odd name for the view too, but the traditional way of replying to the problem of evil is to say, look, here's a reason that God would allow such suffering, that it serves some greater good, that it's all for the best in some way or other, and then they proceed to you know, offer some explanation in, in that way. And that's to offer a theodicy. But the skeptical theist is skeptical not about their theism, they're, they're quite confident that God exists, but they're skeptical that we can understand why God does what he does. And so they claim that, look, we just shouldn't expect to understand why God allows evil. It's beyond our limited capabilities. And so it doesn't trouble me that there is suffering in the world. That doesn't strike me as inconsistent with the existence of God because I don't think that I should understand why God does things he does. His ways are as mysterious to me or should be as mysterious to me as the ways of a human are to a dog. One analogy I usually hear is something like, you know, if I look around the room and I don't see any dogs, then that's pretty good evidence that there aren't any dogs in the room. But if I look around the room and I don't see any particular species of bacteria, that's not really evidence against the idea of there being that bacteria in the room because I wouldn't expect to see that bacteria in the room if there was that one. So likewise, we wouldn't necessarily expect to know God's reasons for permitting evil, even if he had them. Exactly. And that's that's very close to the way that Stephen Weikstra does, in fact, put the claim that the facts about what why God allows evil have what he calls low seeability, um, that we shouldn't expect to be able to see them in the way that we shouldn't be able to expect to just see bacteria looking around the room. Now, you think that if we adopt a skeptical theist approach, that some problems arise for the theist. The first one is that it leads to what you call moral paralysis. How does skeptical theism lead to moral paralysis? First, I should just say, I guess, what I think moral paralysis is. By What, what I mean by that term is that 
Well, you can imagine a situation where you're, you're faced with some sort of dilemma about what to do, whether to keep some promise or whether to go on and do some other thing that seems like a great good at the time, and you're just, you just don't know which is the right thing to do. And so in that sense, you're morally paralyzed. You can't figure out what's, what's right or wrong because the facts just seem too murky and too hard to discern, too hard to figure out what's the right thing to do. Those sorts of situations certainly happen to all of us on occasion. My claim about the theist and the skeptical theist in particular and moral paralysis is that they should be in that situation all the time, that their beliefs put them into a position where any situation, even what we would have thought of as very morally clear situations, they should be baffled and think that they just don't know what to do and they should be morally paralyzed. Why does it lead to that? The basic starting point is that you know, I'll just pretend to be the, the skeptical theist to explain this. I don't know why God does what he does. And some of what happens is on the face of it pretty baffling. And there was a phenomenal earthquake in Haiti just very recently in which people were trapped under rubble for days. Presumably there were children trapped under rubble with broken bones who finally died in great pain of dehydration days later. I mean, some were killed instantly. That's a little bit more humane, but presumably there were many who died just horrible, awful deaths. And I think the death toll is up to something like 200,000, although it's just very hard to know because there were just so many people and they didn't even keep careful track of the bodies. It was just too big a task. The skeptical theist thinks that First of all, God created the plate tectonics and the situation that led to that earthquake. But in any event, even if you want to say, well, you want to dance around that in some way, if he's all powerful, he could have stopped it. He could have stopped the earthquake. He could have made the buildings not fall on the children. And at the, or at the very least, he could have given people a few minutes warning so that they could run outside of rickety buildings mm -hmm. and be better off. He didn't do any of that. And I, as the skeptical theist, the hypothetical skeptical theist, say, well, yeah, no, and I can't, I don't know why he didn't do that. I wouldn't expect to know why he didn't do that. But it was the right thing to do. I am claiming that, the skeptical theist says. It was, it was a good thing to do. I just don't know why. Now consider that I walk into some situation where, say that, you know, my daughter has gotten, in, has taken a fall and has tripped and something has fallen on her and she's got a, a big tree limb on her leg causing great pain. And my question is whether or not to lift the tree limb off of her and to get her medical help. Seems like an obvious call that I should do that. But if I'm a skeptical theist, I should stop and think, well, what would God do? God had far worse things happening to people in Haiti, and he didn't do a thing, or at least he didn't lift the buildings off of them. He didn't take them out from under the rubble. He didn't save them. And I'm confident as a theist that that was the right thing to do under those circumstances. I have no idea why. I'm a skeptical theist. I don't know why God did that, why it was the right thing to do, but I think it was. So now I'm faced with this situation with my daughter trapped under a tree, how can I be confident that the right thing to do is to take the tree off and to alleviate her pain when God didn't do that analogous thing in Haiti or in various other earthquakes? And I'm not saying that you know the evidence should be, as a skeptical theist, that I should leave the tree on top of my daughter. I'm just saying that from the evidence that the skeptical theist has, 
I should admit that I don't know. I really don't know what the right thing to do is because I've got all kinds of examples out there of divine actions or inactions that are frankly incomprehensible from a moral perspective and from the skeptical theist perspective are said to be incomprehensible. I just don't know why God does the things he does. And yet they were the right things to do. The skeptical theist isn't denying God's goodness. So when I'm in my own situation, I should be baffled as to what the right thing to do is now. I have an analogy that I use in the paper. Suppose I'm watching a what appears to be a poker game, and I'm familiar with the general rules of poker. I've you know, seen Texas Hold'em and five-card draw. I know a lot of these games, and I certainly know their standard rank of the poker hands. And I know things about that. Sometimes there are communal cards and various things happen. But these people that are playing this poker game, or it appears to be a poker game, and I can see their hands, but I get to be baffled. Sometimes the person with what seems to be the higher ranked hand wins. Sometimes that person loses. There doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason to it. I can't quite figure out why one person wins the pot when another person doesn't. I, I get baffled watching this game. And I watch it for hours, and I just can't figure it out. I can't figure out what, what's going on here. If somebody comes along and says, oh, what, what is this game? I say, I, you know, I really don't know. I thought it was, you know, it's, you know, they say it's poker, but, and they say the standard hand rankings apply, but I, it, I can't make any sense of it. And then if somebody at the table said, do you want to join in? You know, it's only $100 to join in. I'd certainly say no, because I'm not going to take that kind of risk when I don't understand what I'm doing. I would certainly stay away from the poker game. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that the, the skeptical theist is like the person watching the poker game. She has seen God do all kinds of things that are frankly baffling from a moral perspective. I mean, some things seem, you know, arguably nice, that there's a you know, basically nice world and created us in ways that we can love each other and help each other. On the other hand, you know, it traps people under buildings and lets them die of dehydration um, with broken bones. And it's hard for me to fit all this together, just like it was hard for me to watching the poker, the so-called poker game to fit, fit it together. And similarly to the poker game, where you know, when asked if you want to participate, the answer is clearly no. I don't understand what's going on here. It seems to me that the skeptical theist, having watched all this data from God um, with all these really baffling results as to why God does what he does, and then admitting that I just don't understand why God does what he does, well, am I supposed to, you know, what am I supposed to think when I'm asked to join the game? That is to say, make my own moral decisions. It seems my my conclusion should be analogous that I should admit that I don't know what's going on in this game. Unfortunately, from our perspective, we don't have the option of just refraining from joining the so-called moral game. We have to make decisions. We have to act. But my claim is that the skeptical theist has given up all basis on knowing how to act, even obvious things, um, because they're they've just completely they're, they should be so baffled as to what the right thing to do is, given their own position about God's actions, that they should give up understanding what they think they should do, even in utterly ordinary circumstances. Well, I really like how you explain the problem there and in your paper. Your paper is great for people who don't read a lot of philosophy. It's very comprehensible in that way, so I encourage people to take a look at it. One way that I thought about this problem for skeptical theists before I read your paper is something like this. 
if, say, an event of rape was morally good, because I'm a skeptical theist and I believe that in the end it all worked out for the best or something, then that seems pretty shocking. But as a skeptical theist, I would have to believe that, that this, this rape uh, was good in some way. Then, you know, why should I go out and interfere with a rapist who, who's about to commit a, another crime like that? Why should I think that that's not also going to lead to some greater good because that's how God always works those things out? Why, why should I interfere and do all the things that I would normally think are moral if I really have no idea what a moral type of thing looks like as opposed to a non-moral or Im immoral thing? Yes, and I think that's basically right. I mean, I think I'd put it a little bit more cautiously on the skeptical theist's behalf. They, they don't have to say that they think that necessarily the rape itself was a good thing because that wasn't God's action. But they do have to say that they think that God not intervening with that rape was a good thing, and that then your same conclusion follows, that that should still leave me just as baffled as to whether I should intervene or not if, if given the opportunity. Right, okay. And this becomes rather explicit in some cases. I mean, it's the acronym, what would you know, WWJD, that you want to see on bumper stickers occasionally, what would Jesus do? I find it very interesting in this context because, you know, according to the Christian story, Jesus is God. And, you know, if you want to know what would Jesus do, you should look around and see what God has done. And you get really, really mixed results. There seem to be some good things about the world, certainly. But there also seem to be a lot of cases where... God just allowed incredible, horrible suffering. If we're supposed to act like God would, what would Jesus do? Are we supposed to emulate that? Seems like that should be a serious question for the theist, the skeptical theist who says, look, don't ask what God would do because you can't possibly understand it, but they still have all these examples of God doing these things that are utterly baffling, and they should be utterly baffled themselves as to what the right thing to do is. <laughs> I used to wear one of those WWJD bracelets, and... I never considered the question that way. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I knew very clearly what Jesus would do. Um, but mm -hmm. of course, when presented with the problem of evil, I would say, well, I don't know why God allowed that, uh, but I know he's got some good reason. I mean, it's interesting that in the academic context, this sort of formalized version of skeptical theism that's sort of come about in the academic liter literature within the last few couple of decades or so, mm. But it's actually a fairly normal layperson response. I started encountering it in classrooms when teaching philosophy of religion 15 years ago, 20 years ago, even back when I was in graduate school. It's, I think, you know, a lot of normal, ordinary religious people are, at first glance, perfectly comfortable saying, look, I don't know. I don't know why God does what he does. I shouldn't expect to know. But my claim in the paper is that this has serious, serious consequences if you think it through consistently for how we should approach moral problems in our own life and that the consequences are really bad. Right. So you're arguing that if the theist gives a theodicy in response to the problem of evil, if the theist gives a reason why God allows the horrible devastation of um, Katrina or the earthquake in Haiti, then that's a different issue. But if the theist gives the skeptical theist response, then this problem of moral paralysis should arise. Uh, one objection to your argument 
would be to say, well, what about this? Maybe we can't know anything about God's purposes, because he does some things that are very baffling to us, but we should play it safe by eliminating suffering whenever we can. It's an interesting response, and it seems like an obvious response. I guess the, the immediate question is, well, what counts as playing it safe? We could eliminate all suffering whenever you see any potential for suffering and you can stop it then eliminate it. But that would mean, for example, that if you've got your you know, small child and you're taking her into the doctor to be vaccinated for some, against some disease, well, she's about to undergo some suffering when the doctor puts the needle into her arm. So should you stop the doctor and say, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm trying to eliminate all suffering. I can't allow this. Of course we don't do that. Why? Because, well, you know, there we, we make the judgment that this amount of suffering in the child is worth the elimination of later suffering by the chance of her coming across that disease. Playing it safe certainly can't mean just eliminate any suffering you see, because we know sometimes that some suffering now is worth it. It's the bright thing to do. So we're already in the mode of figuring out when suffering is worth it and when it's not. There is no sort of automatic path of playing it safe. So when you say we should just play it safe and, and not worry about whether or not, going back to my daughter example, whether the tree landing on my daughter is a bad thing or a good thing, whether the suffering in her leg is worth it or not. You can't simply say, well, I'll play it safe because <clears throat> I always eliminate suffering because we don't. We don't always eliminate suffering. We always make some sort of calculation as to whether this suffering is worth it or not. And so once we recognize that we always have to make these calculations, the theist has no reason to avoid taking into account the data from God's apparent actions or inactions in the world. And so there, there is no sort of easy path of just playing it safe. Now, why can't the skeptical theist say, well, I'll play it safe and follow my moral intuitions because God has written his moral law on our hearts? There are two levels of response. One is that Sometimes our moral intuitions are just unclear, and we want to sort of think it through. Now, maybe then the subsequent answer to that is that, well, yeah, we just use our ability to think these things through morally. That's what God wanted. But then the second level of response to this line is more thoroughgoing. On the skeptical theist view, we don't understand why God does what he does. We can't comprehend that. We can't know. That's the whole point. That's the whole reason that the skeptical theist can say, I can evade saying that God must be evil for allowing the earthquake in Hades because we just say, look, I don't know why God did these things. I don't understand God's ways. His ways are mysterious to me. That very point has to apply. It's a general point about not understanding God's ways. So when the skeptical theist then turns around and says, but God gave us moral intuitions and he wanted us to use them, that's just flatly inconsistent with saying God's ways are mysterious. Because the skeptical theist is saying, I know why God gave me these intuitions. He wants me to use them and wants me to use them to the best of my ability. And he wants me to ignore his own examples of action or inaction. I just know that that's what God wants. Well, if you know that that's what God wants, then why don't you know why God wanted to create an earthquake in Haiti? If the point of skeptical theism is that you don't know what God wants and you never do, his ways are mysterious, then you can't consistently claim that I know that he wants me to use my moral intuitions. Well, can't the skeptical theists say that while we are 
completely ignorant of God's reasons for allowing evil, they are nonetheless informed about some of God's other purposes, like, for example, the purpose that we should respect our moral intuitions that he implanted in us? Yeah, one could try to make distinctions. In essence, what one would be doing there and making that reply is to cordon off, to quarantine. There right. are certain things about God that we don't understand, but there are other things that we do understand. The big question about that would be what the justification is for why we understand some things rather than other things. And it may be that there's a consistent reply out there that can somehow make sense of this. But the big point that I would make is that the argument for skeptical theism, the reason that it's actually somewhat appealing, that it seems kind of appropriately humble in the face of a divine being is there's the analogy that we might a dog might as well understand the mind of Newton as we can understand the ways of God. You start putting things that way. I mean, the whole point of why we can say that the actions of God have low seeability, to use Weikster's phrase, is that God is supposed to be such a different sort of agent from us and so far above us that it's actually an act of hubris to think that we can understand God's ways. That's the sort of motivation that makes some sense of the skeptical theist move. But given that motivation, there's just no reason at all to say, oh, but we, of course we do understand certain things. If the motivation for skeptical theism is that God's ways are so far above ours that it is just incredibly presumptuous to think that you should be able to understand them, and that's an understandable motivation. But then when you apply it, you have to apply it across the board. There's no grounds for quarantining certain things of God's actions that you just don't understand, but other actions that you do understand. If you don't understand God, you don't understand God. And that means you don't understand why he gave you moral intuitions. It means you don't understand why he gave us commands if he did in the Bible. We just don't understand what he does. That may be a comprehensible and sensible view in some respects if you have reason to believe in a completely infinite and divine being. Maybe we shouldn't expect to understand him, but it's just inconsistent to say, except that we do understand certain things, unless you've got some rationale for that, unless there's you know, absent some special compelling argument for why we can understand certain things but not others. It seems to me that the motivation for skeptical theism would just simply apply across the board. Yeah, and a similar point is made outside the context of the skeptical theist's response to the problem of evil by a philosopher named Stephen Mason at Acadia University. He has a paper uh, called Anselmian Atheism where he says, look, if we actually take seriously this notion that God is the greatest conceivable being or just beyond human comprehension, then that would seem to imply a radical kind of mysticism about God, where it would be very difficult for us to make any positive claims, and yet theists are making the most incredibly specific and detailed claims to understand God's purposes and what he's like and how he wants us to live and who he wants us to sleep with and all these very, very specific <laughs> knowledge claims about God. And yet at the other time, when we bring up a problem of evil or something like that, they're like, oh, well, we don't understand God at all. Trying to understand God is like a, you know, a dog trying to understand its owner or something like that. 
Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I, it is, it's actually, frankly, very frustrating to me. And it, it, I mean, the interesting thing about the problem of evil is that for those of us on one side, you know, who are dubious about this at any event, but dubious about the consistency here and don't understand how it could be that God allows such evil, that these sorts of answers just seem patently inadequate because it does seem just inconsistent. And yet I know from talking to you know, lots of theists and lots of students in philosophy of religion courses that for a lot of theists on the other side, I mean, some of them are genuinely worried about the problem of evil, but a great number of them just really don't think there's a problem here. And it's, and I, I have trouble figuring out, and usually it's because they are on some level or other skeptical theists, but that they do somehow in their mind, they neatly divide the things about God that they don't understand and that they don't think they should understand. And then there are the things that they do understand. Right. The rationale for that completely eludes me. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you say that, or you argue that skeptical theism also undermines a very popular argument for God's existence, the design argument. How does that happen? Uh, yes, and this is a case in point of the thing that we've just been talking about, about mm -hmm. you know, dividing what we can understand about God and what we can't. The argument from design uh, says that we can tell from certain features of the world that it must have been designed. That there's, you know, the, the famous example from Paley is that if you were walking along in a, on a heath and found a watch, that you would know that this was something that wasn't just some sort of natural thing that just popped into existence. It has all the marks of being designed for a purpose. It's, it's, it works well. At a, you, know, you can see what it's for. And so you know it had a designer. And the argument from design claims that if you look at the world as a whole, it's much better designed even than a watch. It's much more intricate, and you can see the purposes behind it. There is, um, And so it couldn't be just by chance. It couldn't have just popped into existence. It couldn't have just evolved in some way or other. There must be a designer. Um, and there are various different versions of this argument, on, you know, especially about the fine-tuning of the physical constants that we can talk about a little bit uh, if you want, because I think you know, some of these versions of the argument actually have some strong appeal. I don't think they're easily dismissed. However, the point that I want to make here about skeptical theism is that any such argument from design including arguments about the fine-tuning of the physical constants or about just you know, whatever feature of the world one thinks seems to be evidence of design, any argument from design presupposes that you know something about what God would want. Because the whole point of an argument from design is to say that such and such feature of the world, its beauty, its, its you know, orderliness, something, some feature of the world, is utterly mysterious on an atheistic view because it's just, you know, why would the world be orderly? Why would it be beautiful? Why would it be such that life could evolve? The atheist, the claim goes, has no explanation for these things and that that's a big problem. And the theist says, look, I have an explanation. I know why these things, because God would want them. God would want the world to be orderly. God would want it to be beautiful. God would want it to be such that life can evolve, such that we can have people who love one another. And all of that you know, makes some sense as an argument from design. We can talk about it more in detail if we want. But the point here is that it presupposes, the, the reason that the theist has 
at least on its face, an explanation for these phenomena about the world is that the theist can say that on her theory, this is the sort of thing that God would want. If God wouldn't want order, if God wouldn't want beauty, if God wouldn't want love, then of course we can't say that the fact that there is a world in which these things occur is any evidence whatsoever for God if God wouldn't want them. The whole point behind any argument from design is that you can explain certain features of the world because you know that this is the sort of thing that God would want. And therefore, the hypothesis that God exists explains these features, whereas the atheist has no explanation. That's the basic layout, but of, that's the basic layout of the argument from design. But if you're a skeptical theist and you've given up the idea that you can understand what God wants or why God does what he does, then you've given up the crucial premise in the argument from design, any form of it. You've given up the idea that you as a theist can explain why God would want beauty, love, order, any of those things. You no longer know why God does anything he does. So you can't, you have no more explanation for these features of the world than does the atheist. You've just undercut completely any reason from the argument from design for believing in such a God. Yeah. And of course, like you said before, that ties into a more general point. For example, we could consider other arguments for the existence of God, where God is invoked to be the best explanation of something mysterious, like consciousness. Consciousness is very mysterious, and so theists will often invoke um, God as an explanation for consciousness and say, well, look, if, if God exists and God wanted uh, there to be consciousness, then he would, you know, poof, it into existence and there would be and there would be consciousness and that's the explanation for why there's consciousness but again if you're a skeptical theist and you assert that you are baffled by God's purposes then you can't very well say that you know God would want consciousness exactly that's exactly right i mean that's the skeptical theist would just be you know, left to saying, well, consciousness is baffling and God is baffling, therefore they're sort of made for each other. But that doesn't work as an explanation at all. I want to ask you about a more general topic. Your, your paper is a contribution to a vast literature arguing back and forth about reasons to think that uh, the god of classical monotheism exists versus reasons to think that the god of classical monotheism does not exist. And that's a debate that has recently become popular in America because of probably the new atheists or maybe because of 9-11 or that kind of thing. And there seems to be a big difference between how Dawkins or people on the street will argue about the existence of God and how philosophers will argue about the existence of God. And yet the paper that we're talking about today, you know, it talks about things that we all think about. Like I was saying, when I was a Christian, I would use the skeptical theist response to the problem of evil, but not really consider some of its implications. So I wonder if you could share with us for you as a philosopher, what does the popular debate over the existence of God look like, and how would you like to see it evolve, and what would you like to see happening in the debate in the philosophical literature? 
what does this whole story look like to you and where would you like to see it go? One of the things that I find dissatisfying about the popular debate, I mean, there's there's the popular debate really sort of on the level of the street and you know, sort of in newspaper op-eds and things like that, where it's just, there's not much debate at all. It's just assertion. There's the popular debate at the level of books like Richard Dawkins' book, um, Christopher Hitchens, and various things like that. And I've got a lot of respect for Richard Dawkins and some of these people, and I think he, you know, he makes some really good points and that sort of thing. It's thin philosophically, but that's just sort of the nature of the beast, I think, when you're talking about popular arguments that are made for position, you can't go into great philosophical detail and you go into you know, or you lose people and it's just you want to kind of get to the heart of the matter. The thing that frustrates me about the popular debate more so than it being thin, although I suppose it's that's related, is what I perceive to be a lack of serious effort to understand the opposing side. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that on the theistic side, there are just sort of doors that you don't open within the popular mindset. And you manage to close off thinking about the problem of evil because you, you just say, well, I just can't understand what God would do. And you don't think about the consequences of that. That's sort of the point of the immediate paper or you, or you give some theodicy about there being some greater good, but don't think about the further consequences of that. That goes beyond the topic of the paper that I specifically wrote, of course. But you just think you've got a pat answer and stop and don't really, really grapple with the problem of evil and why it seems so hard for somebody on the non-theistic side to understand why a good God would do these things. On the other side, though, I would say this goes both ways, that I think atheists sometimes fall into the trap of just ridiculing religion and thinking of it as you know, a basically the equivalent of calling one nine hundred psychics, and that it's just the mark of weak minds and people who need something to get through their life, and so they, you know, come up with concoct some fairy tale. And I think there's much more that's serious about certainly about religious belief in general, and even about the arguments for the existence of God than that. And I think sometimes atheists tend to be way too quick to reject reasons for believing in God and aren't, you know, are similarly not making a serious effort to understand why people are attracted to these reasons. And it's, it's not always just about feelings or emotions or that sort of thing. It's sometimes there are, there are reasons involved. There's tendency on both sides to just dismiss the other side too quickly. And that's probably my biggest regret about the popular debate as it stands. Excellent. Well, Scott, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for coming on the show. Well, thanks for having me. It's been great.